Beautiful home, and we're very glad to, to make use of it in this way. Thank you for the hospitality. So this is, as you I think know, a joint a joint venture of Drisha, whom I teach, and Darchai Noam. We could talk more about why that venture makes sense, I think. But we, from the Drisha side, are very excited to partner with the Darchai Noam community. Drisha has lots of, of teaching Torah to share, and um, we are very happy to, to, to match up with communities that uh, they're interested in building community through learning. That's sort of our raison d'etre. I'm glad that brought me here this evening. And for a few weeks, so it'll be fun. Okay, so our topic is a slightly broad one. We have four weeks to deal with Miguelada Esther. We're not going to be going through the book straightforwardly, like reading chapter 1 through chapter 10. I, I want to try to draw out what I think are the political and ideological points of the book. And I want to start with a bit of history, not hopefully too boring, but, um, but I think that the points, the ideology, what the book is actually trying to say, which I'll say up front, I, I think is, you know, I don't want to pretend that you can just take things from 2,500 years ago and apply them today, but I think as we'll see right at the beginning, there are many reasons to think that whatever the book is doing are at least some of the same questions we struggle with today. But in order to say that, in order to make sense of all this, I think we do need a bit of setting. We need to see where the book is coming from. And that's both, like, literally, like, where is it coming from? When, where, what's going on in the world? As well as intellectually, culturally, where is it coming from? Like, what is it reading? The author, you know, no author is in a vacuum. There's a range of opinions as to how unvacuum-like an author it can be. But, you know, I think sort of a new critical approach does terrible injustice to a text like this, and, you know, in my view, most other texts also, but that's a different issue. I mean, taking it out of an intellectual context and just pretending we can read it as if it didn't matter when it came from, I think we would actually miss a lot of, of what the book is trying to do. All right, so enough, enough pontificating. Let's jump into this. So we're set in the Persian Empire, right? Years don't matter that much. I mean, I'll throw them out, but obviously it's not a numbers game. But Cyrus, first uh, king of the Persian Empire, had taken over the entire Babylonian Empire according to his own text, without firing a shot in the year 539. And he had then said, everyone can do whatever they want. Basically, my imperial policy is totally different than the Babylonian imperial policy or sort of giant reset button on the entire Middle East. Uh, go home if you want. Like, you know, I know the Babylonians have some trouble with you, but like, I'm not into exiling people. And I'd much rather earn your loyalty and trust by allowing everyone to do whatever they want, essentially. So we have, of course, the Cyrus Cylinder, which lives in London in the British Museum, but it was actually here in the Met a few years ago. A very famous, famous text where Cyrus essentially narrates his takeover of Babylon, explains why it was bloodless, and then says, you know, I'm going to allow everyone to rebuild the temples to Marduk in Babylon, because why should you not worship Marduk in Babylon? Like, what do I care if you worship Marduk in Babylon? The, the parallel to that is the beginning of the book of Ezra, the biblical book of Ezra, where Cyrus is cited, is quoted, as saying to the Jews, if you want to go back to Jerusalem, go back to Jerusalem and rebuild your temple there. And uh, although we don't have a copy of that, there's really no good reason to doubt that he would say such a thing. He said it to the Babylonians, no reason to think the Babylonians are special. This is apparently his policy. So of course, the Bible quotes it as if this is a specifically Jewish thing, that he liked the Jews, he favored the Jews. At least that's the impression one gets. That's also a, a sort of spinning of it in a particularly Judeo-centric way. But this is, this is just his broad policy. So everyone can do whatever they want. And, as long as you um, pay taxes. As long as you pay Well, that's his broad, his broad policy. That's exactly right, right? I mean, the reason that he doesn't care is because he literally doesn't care what you do in your house or in your temples or where you live, as long as each province literally pays his taxes and becomes part of the economy of the Persian Empire. And that Persian Empire, as we see in the Book of Esther, is a really well-run one. Right? I mean, you, you get the impression when you pay attention to those kind of details, that you can send messages from the capital to 127 provinces, and they just go, right? And they're translated, presumably, does so in Esther, and they go from you know, Hodu, which is the Indus Valley, right? So essentially now modern Pakistan, to Kush, which is, you know, basically southern Egypt, northern Sudan at this point, which is a huge amount of territory. And I also want to emphasize that it's not just a huge amount of territory, a lot of that is territory that actually no one can ever govern, right? I mean, you're talking about like going through 
like mountainous Afghanistan, right? Mm. So you don't have to pay attention to the news to know that like, it's really hard to govern mm. Afghanistan. <laughs> uh, Iran is, is a huge country with lots of mountains on its west and then these highlands to the, to the north. Are not simple places to govern. And I don't think we should pretend that the Persians have like tight control over every square mile of this region, but that they have established systems of bureaucracy and military and education, all sorts of things that allow them to at least function across this very, very large amount of territory. So it's not like a modern state where like, you know, if they knew anything, if anything's going on in the mountains of Afghanistan, they would know about it. I don't think we should exaggerate that. And there are obviously porous borders and all, all those things that we rightly associate with pre-modern states. But they can actually govern this. They can actually function as this really remarkably far-flung empire. So the Jews in this empire can do whatever they want. And some of them, but only very some of them, that's not actually good English, go back to Jerusalem. And back has to be in quotation marks. Because actually the vast majority of Jews who go to Jerusalem when Cyrus says so, let's assume that they're young adults or older, have never seen Jerusalem. Right? I mean, their parents or grandparents had been exiled, let's say, half a century earlier. About just under half a century, it was the big exile. So they're not going back anywhere. They're actually choosing to go to the homeland of their ancestors, which may just be one or two generations ago. But that, of course, makes it all the more understandable why it's not that many people. Right? And it's not, I miss my homeland, and now I have the opportunity to go back. It's, well, I know my family came from there, but I was born here. And now you're telling me I could move there, which, you know, sounds nice and sentimental. But on the other hand, like, what's there? Like, there's no economy in Jerusalem. There's no essentially no people in Jerusalem. There's a bunch of like subsistence farming going on in the environs of Jerusalem, but that doesn't sound all that attractive. So assuming I have a good functioning life here and I've settled down and I have a house and I'm in real estate or whatever I'm doing in southern Mesopotamia and Babylon, Nippur, or you know, in the Persian heartland, uh, you know, maybe it's tugging on my heartstrings, but it's, it's not doing more than that. It's hard to just pick up and go. And the truth is we get a very small community of people going uh, numbering in the probably single digits thousands, which is not tiny, but it's not very impressive when we're talking about a diaspora community of probably in the uh, low hundreds of thousands. So the Jews are, you know, some of them are over there. It takes them a long time to rebuild the temple. It takes them more than 20 years. And again, that's not so surprising. It's expensive to build a temple. So it takes them a while to just collect the basic funds. And when they finally do it, we're told in the book of Ezra again, that the elder people, elderly people, who remembered the first temple, which of course had been first built by Solomon many, many centuries ago, and then refurbished and whatever, but it was the one that was destroyed you know, 70 years earlier. When they saw the new temple, they cried. Because it's nice that there's a temple, but it paled in comparison to that first temple. That first temple had been built by someone with access to, you know, Israel was never a very big country, but as much resources as anyone had, had access to back in the Iron Age, he had access to in the, at the time. So gold and impressive wood and all sorts of trappings. And now we're not told exactly what the temple looks like, but it can't have been very impressive. Most they could afford, seriously, to carve the stones instead of using field stones. But that's about the level of luxury that they were able to afford. It was larger. Well, what do you... When are you talking the about the second larger? temple complex and the first? Well, by the end of the second temple, it's oh, yeah, much no. larger. But not, uh, not at the beginning. But at the beginning, it's no. really apparently. I'm not told a lot of details, but you know, when we think about the second temple, if you like Google second temple <laughs> and get a picture of it, or you go to the Israel Museum with the uh, the model of Jerusalem that's uh, used to be in the Holy Land Hotel, that's Herod's temple. That's 500 years later, and Herod you can compare to Solomon. I mean, he has access to huge amounts of resources. So when he rebuilds a temple, that is an amazingly impressive. Edifice, but that stands for less than a century. The second temple that is built at the beginning of the second temple period is, I can't describe it, I can't draw it, but uh, we're told it's unimpressive. All right, the key to, to realize is that the vast majority of Jews have, have actually opted to stay wherever they were in quote unquote exile, which for them is actually home. Right? It's where they were born, where they grew up, the language that they speak is, you know, probably Aramaic at this point, and the uh, Aramaic is the official language of the Persian Empire. We have, uh, we have text in Aramaic, but you know, for the Jews, that probably wouldn't have been that uh, that onerous a language to, to pick up. And you know, they're naming their kids whatever they're naming them. Uh, and I mean that seriously. We'll come back to that. But uh, the two leaders of the Jewish return, quote unquote, to Jerusalem under Cyrus have names Sheshbatzar and Zerubbabel. 
So these are the Jews who actually do choose to go to Jerusalem, and they have incredibly Babylonian names. I mean, uh, literally with God names in them, divine Babylonian names in them, which is obviously not a religious statement. I think that's important to emphasize. These are just names for them. They're not, they're not statements of religiosity, but they have absolutely acculturated. I mean, their parents chose to give them Babylonian names without too much regard for the etymology of those names and not worry about, like, oh, we should name them Jewish things. As we'll see, that's actually relevant for Esther because Mordecai, of course, has a Babylonian name. Esther has two names, and that uh, seems important in the book as well. Okay, so the Persians, last thing to say about this at this point, uh, the Persians are, are really good at running an empire, and the Persian Empire lasts for more than two centuries. Cyrus 539. Why does the Persian Empire end? Alexander. Alexander, yeah. So that also is important to say, because it's not like, not like the Babylonians before them, not like the Assyrians before them, who essentially, like, at some point just self-destructed, imploded, which is not hard to do if you're trying to govern, you know, lots and lots of different people over many, many hundreds of, of miles. All you need is a little bit of weakness, and the people along the margins will pick that up. And if you don't have the strength, I mean, you know, political, military, all sorts of strength needed to actually go put this empire back together every few years, uh, the empire will disintegrate. The Persians were amazingly good at this. So they kept it going for two centuries, and they never imploded. That's not to say that every king was absolutely astonishing in, uh, in his uh, power and might and, and influence, but it only came to an end because of Alexander. And that, that means that, you know, as far as we could tell, it could have just kept going. So, you know, we usually hear the history from Alexander's side. So, you know, Darius III is lambasted for all sorts of uh, cowardly things that he did on the battlefield, abandoning his wife to be captured by the Greeks, which doesn't actually sound like a very nice thing to do. But from the, from the political perspective, the Persians are doing great. I mean, they just keep going and going and going. Again, more than two centuries and no end in sight until this uh, Alexander guy shows up and puts an end to it. So all of this is, is essentially good if you're a resident of the Persian Empire. I mean, there's a lot of stability. The economy, by ancient standards, <laughs> is good, meaning... Growth is an anachronism, right? No one cares about economic growth until the modern period. Like, you just want to live, like, year to year. But that seems to be stable. You know, the wars are on the margins. So the Persians do fight against the Greeks over there, and they fight up in the Indus Valley, and they're fighting up, you know, beyond Anatolia. But if you're, like, in the heartland, you've probably never seen war. I mean, no one's ever attacked the heartland of Persia uh, for many, many years. Which means that the Jews, among other people, have this, like, nice, you know, to use an anachronist term, bourgeois existence, where they're, they're doing what they're doing and they're sort of happily going about their lives, not living in political turmoil. It's not like, you know, what's going to happen next? Uh, and this seems like a good thing, right? It seems like, actually, for the ancient world, this is extraordinary and certainly something to celebrate. But as good as it is politically, it's a real problem theologically. Not necessarily for everyone. You know, you never know who's thinking about what. But at least it's a potential theological problem for the Jews. And we see what we see in Tanakh, what we see in, in a lot of the biblical books, is that a lot of the biblical authors are actually really exercised by this problem. Because this flies in the face of everything they had been led to expect from, you know, sort of biblical history, which is also anachronistic, but like their history as they learned it, as they experienced it, and the stories that they grew up on. Because, because of course, the whole biblical premise is there's this chosen land and a chosen people, and God has chosen this people and this land, and they're going to live together in this like wonderful triangle, right? God, people, land, and that's going to be forevermore. Now, they know that there was an exile, but that exile came with all these promises of restoration. Seventy years, Jeremiah said. Was there a restoration? Well, I mean, Cyrus said you could go back, but like, that's not a restoration. We'll see this hopefully later today or, uh, or next week, but when people in the exile talked about like, what's this restoration going to look like? They assumed it was going to be essentially a second exodus, meaning not the king saying, you may go back if you wish, and then you could live an impoverished lifestyle by yourselves in the Judean countryside, but God will come and do all sorts of miracles and bring you out, and you'll walk in triumphantly to the chosen land as you did back in the first time around. Like, it's going to be that again. That's what they were expecting, and of course, that never materialized. So as the decades go on, some of the Jews are at least like, what's going on here? Like, what happened to Jewish history? Like, we, had, we thought we had this destiny, this covenantal future that was lying in, in front of us, much like our covenantal past. And it doesn't seem to be materializing, and we're not totally sure why. Like, is it our fault? Is it God's fault? What's supposed to happen next? And the longer this goes on, 
the more acute the problem becomes, but of course it's never acute, it's never a year that it has to happen. So it's sort of like simmering, like what is this? What is this reality here? So one of the big themes that we'll spend time on over the next few weeks is how Esther, in conversation with some of the other biblical books, is trying to actually make sense of that. Like, so what is that? Like, what is this reality here? Like, what do we do here? Like, what does it mean to be a Jew in the diaspora? That was never the expectation. The expectation is that if we're out of Israel, that's just a waiting game, because like, soon we'll go back. But we don't seem to be going back, so we seem to need to settle in and figure out what this lifestyle means, and it's not at all clear what the answer to that is, because what precedent do we have for that? You know, we think back about the biblical stories, and like, who are the heroes that we can appeal to? So Moses, like, bad hero, right? Because he's, of course, leading the Jews into, into the promised land. David, obviously the wrong hero, right? He's not only in the promised land, but he's establishing an autonomous political state in the, in the promised land, very far from what the Jews in the Persian Empire know. Even the Jews in Jerusalem are part of the Persian Empire, right? So, well, like, he's not, he's not going to help us as a, as a model. So the thing that I actually want to start with is literally this quest for... For heroes, like, you know, when the Jews in the Persian Empire had to think about which biblical stories are, are useful for us, you know, we talk about a usable past, like, which ones are actually usable, they had to sort of sift the Bible looking for stories that could be used as models for their own life. Yeah, so they had to, they had to look back and say, like, okay, you know, who can we look to? So any thoughts? Like, who could you look to? Any thoughts on biblical characters who might be good models for the afterlife? Joseph. Okay, great. What's attractive about Joseph, besides the fact that he was apparently attractive? Right. Um, well, he was a um, diaspora leader. He had a lot of power. And, okay, great. Yeah, I mean, I could put it that way, I guess. But, uh, okay, so, you know, I'll ask you to elaborate a little bit. So he's a diaspora... Okay, so let me think out loud. He was a diaspora leader, and I guess in some ways he had contact with Canaan. Like, mm. he still had family in the homeland, but he was... had a lot of power, and I guess he was... Well, he was very assimilated, as far mm-hmm. as we know. He wasn't Hebrew-like. When his when Joseph and the brothers are speaking, they, the text says there's an interpreter. In wonderful. Case, so yeah, wonderful. I, I teach Jewish studies, so. Very good. You don't need an <laughs> excuse. Um, <laughs> Otherwise, you'd be like, why do you know stuff? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm accepting I'm very knowledgeable with people. Sure. Yeah, so the interpreter thing, I guess, so I'm going to think out loud. He's speaking to the brothers... Yes, in Arabic. In Hebrew. Wait, is he speaking to the brothers in Egyptian? Egyptian, right? Egyptian. Yeah. But how do the brothers know Egyptian? No, no, there's an interpreter. There's an interpreter, right? I mean, let's have Yeah, great. Yeah, great. No, that's... Oh. What do you say? He encourages them to go to Adam. Yeah, absolutely. Wait, so, so okay, let's unpack some of this, okay? So so he's a diaspora Jew, right? So he is, he is personally been exiled, right? Exile's not a bad word for him. I mean, it was, yeah. wasn't his choice. You know, we don't, that story is actually not all that uh, relevant for us, uh, how he got there. But he's born in Canaan, winds up in Egypt. Very powerful, as you said. That wasn't quick, right? So he had some bad years there. And he's okay, like soft landing, really bad years. <laughs> Did really well for himself. He's powerful in, at least in retrospect, in two different ways, right? So one is, like, what's the obvious way in which he's powerful? He's very smart. He is very smart. And he, um, as, a, as an economist and political scientist or whatever of that period. Great. And okay, he, wonderful. Uh, I mean, that's why he was able to get this power, because he was able to solve the problems. I mean, the dreams were a device to get him to, yeah. to Poirot, yeah. but it was his sacred that got him to yeah, save the, at least save the pharaonic Egyptian structure. Great. It feudalized the rest of the Excellent, country. excellent. We'll come back to that in a second. And I want to come back to the dreams probably next week. But yeah, very important about how he rose to power, right? Because yeah. you're absolutely right. It's, you know, he angles for at some point. Right? The same way as Mordecai rose. What do you mean by the same way? I'm saying they both came from low-level, kind of outside the gate. And, you know, Yosef was, was in jail and nothing. And then they both rose throughout the story. Great. Wonderful. Okay, so, so first of all, he's just powerful. Like, by any standard, he's powerful, mm-hmm. right? I mean, he's powerful by Egyptian standards. Yeah. I mean, you know, he's uh, something like a year you know, or something. I mean, you know, there's this verse that uh, says, you know, I'm the only one above you, uh, which sounds incredibly grand. So that's, and as you point out, I mean, Egypt is not a small place to rule. And this is uh, it's one of the major states in, in the ancient, ancient Near East. So he's powerful in those standards. Now, as you said, I'm sorry, I don't know people's names. What's your name? Oh, Abby. 
Abed. As Abi said, not only is he powerful within Egypt, like as an Egyptian leader, but he also uses his influence with his, this is anachronistic, but his co-religionists, right? I mean, who are literally his brothers. But he uses his influence and his power to actually help his family. So that's important also, right? Because if he didn't do that, then we might say, like, well, it's true he's a diaspora Jew, but, like, he's not a good diaspora Jew. He's a diaspora Jew who's just totally been acculturated or assimilated or whatever you want to say, you know, whatever word you want to use anachronistically, uh, but cut himself off from the, from the quote-unquote Jewish people at the time. But, like, no, 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 he didn't do that, right? He, he is very much acculturated. He speaks Egyptian, as you said. That's, you know, very important to observe. And he speaks Egyptian well enough, at least, that the Canaanite brothers don't know that he's a foreigner, Right? So he's not like stammering in some terrible Canaanite accent. Uh, I don't know if the Egyptians could hear his accent, but, but at least the Canaanites don't catch on that he's actually not a native speaker. You know, it's a, a, an impressive level of language acquisition when he gets there as an older teenager. Uh, and he uses that, you know, so he is profoundly acculturated, but he uses that also for the benefit of his, of his family. That's at the end, you know, in retrospect, when we think about Joseph, that, all that's true and that's you know, very, very important. I think that's part of why this is, uh, why he is an attractive model. But... I want to start with, uh, with something that's actually something of a challenge to that picture. At the top of the second page. We'll come back to the first page in a minute. But at the top, the top of the second page, we have the notice of when Joseph had his two children. Now, as, uh, as no doubt many of you know, having children forces parents to grapple with their own identities. Okay? Suddenly, you have to decide. Like, I mean, sometimes really explicitly and sometimes less explicitly, you have to actually decide. Like, what do I want from this child? And, of course, what that means is what do I actually want for myself? I'm too old to do X, Y, and Z for myself, but now I can impose it on my kids, or I always wanted to do this, now I can give them the opportunity, or you know, these are the parts of my childhood that I do want them to replicate, don't want them to replicate. You know, naming is a big deal, um, obviously, you know, only as a stand-in for all those bigger questions, but the big questions are really, are really profound. Now, we have this, this notice that when Joseph, Joseph, of course, marries who? Remember who he marries? Egyptian, yeah, Osnat, who actually has a Semitic name, uh, but she's the daughter of Potifera, priest of Heliopolis. So ah, that's like as Egyptian as you could possibly get, right? And he's, a, he's the high priest, or at least a priest, in one of the major cult centers of ancient Egypt, and he marries his daughter. And Potifera must have been a common name, because he never counted two of them. Similar. Well, Potifera, Potifera, yeah, it's a little yeah. weird, but... <laughs> and the other Egyptian name to be encountered. In the Bible, or at all? Well, in we that have hundreds, time. Right? Exactly. Right, right. We, I mean, one of the nice things here is that we actually have lots and lots of Egyptian texts, yeah. so we can, yeah. you know, we can talk about Egypt more broadly. But and there actually are a lot of Semitic names in late in, in New Kingdom Egypt. There's actually a lot of Canaanite names because there's a lot of cultural contact. So it's not even Middle Kingdom, depending on when you said this. But uh, we have lists actually of Semitic names. Anyway, it doesn't matter so much. But uh, it doesn't seem all that uh, unreasonable that Potiphera, the priest of Heliopolis, would give his daughter a Semitic name. Uh, not Hebrew in particular, but uh, Aramaic, Canaanite, something like that. Anyway, but he, he has two kids. They have two kids. And names the first one, Menashe. Menashe means he who causes to forget. And it's explained. Quote, for God made me forget all my travail and my whole father's house. That is a dramatic turning of his back on his family. Now, I don't want to blame him for that, after all. <laughs> they turned their back on him first, right? I mean, his brothers sold him down to, to Egypt. And there's this, like, long-standing long question that, uh, as far as I know, Ramban, Nachmanides, first asked explicitly, at least, you know, when Joseph is in Egypt, at least when he rises to power in Egypt, why does he not write to at least his father? I mean, his brother is like, we get it. But, like, his poor dad, right? It doesn't take that much empathy to realize that my father loved me, and I am not there, and like, oh my god, he must be in terrible pain. Right? That, that seems straightforward. Yes, but I'll just, psychologically, like, maybe he realized that his father's favoritism caused all this uh-huh. havoc on, in his family, and he was, maybe he was so resentful. This is absolutely possible. I mean, obviously, there is no answer key here, so that seems, <laughs> that seems totally possible, and psychologically plausible. It may even be that he thought his father was involved. Right? After all, how did he get to his brothers to begin with? His dad said, hey, go check on your brothers. He gets to his brothers, they toss him into a pit. He's kicked out of the pit, sold down to Egypt. He's like, I see what happened here. 
Right? Who's the only one that he actually does want to have a relationship with? Benjamin. His full brother, Benjamin. Benjamin. It's not so much because of the blood relationship. He's a kid, exactly. He's a kid. Yeah, that's exactly right. So he was actually not involved, but he wasn't there, and he couldn't have been the mastermind. So later on, when Joseph does talk to his brothers again, not before he reveals himself to his brothers, when he talks to them, uh, he tries to engineer his brother Benjamin coming down and isolating him from the rest of the brothers. He has no interest in a relationship with the rest of his brothers or his father, for some reason, right? I mean, I think there's two plausible reasons. But Benjamin is exempt from, from his, uh, his bitterness. But when he says here, God has made me forget all my amal, and call Beit Avim, my father's whole house, that's not just rhetoric. I mean, he really means it. He has cut himself off entirely from his father's household. And puts it on the child. And puts it on the child. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> Plays with parents too. <laughs> right. <laughs> so much easier. <laughs> All right, and the second kid, so conveniently, literally at least, he has two kids back to back. So you can get like two half thoughts together. So it's not just that I'm forgetting myself, I'm forgetting, you know, cutting myself off from my father's house, put that behind me, but also, Ephraim, ki Ephrani Elohim God has made me flourish in the land of my affliction. So this is actually really psychologically fascinating. Because, of course, if the first thing he says when he has a child is, Thank you, God, for helping me to forget my father's house, what do you know about his? Memory. Memory. He has not forgotten his father's house. That's exactly right. Uh, like if he actually forgot his father's house, he would not be saying this. Uh, by forgetting, he doesn't mean forgetting, right? He means something like puts it behind, putting behind it, right? Now, moves on. You know, I wouldn't try to analyze him in any profound way from a half line that we have here, but it's clear that this is still, to a large extent, an open wound. Right? He is very much in pain, and that is still raw. Now, something like 15, 20 years later, literally the first time he has the opportunity to say something uh, about his own identity, beyond just like, I gotta make, my, make, make a good life for myself here, I have to succeed, he talks about the fact that he's been betrayed. And that is, that is what's uh, still, still on his mind when he has something to say. But he's also attributing it to God and thanking God. Yeah, so which is also a amazing. Theological component. Right, he said, you know, he uses Elohim, which is a sort of neutral term for God. And he doesn't say Hashem, which would be specifically the Israelite God. But it's true. I mean, it, every indication is that this is his God, not, uh, you know, he doesn't thank uh, Ra or, or whoever. But uh, it's, yeah, very, very true. So it's a religious statement. So he's still, you know, invoking God for cutting him off for, from his father's house. And then the second half of his thought with the second son is, I'm flourishing now in the land of my affliction. Right? Not... Like, this is wonderful, I'm so happy to be in sunny Egypt, but it's still the land of my affliction, right? I, I still feel like a foreigner here, but at least I'm flourishing in this land of my affliction. So really, I, I mean, uh, it's so briefly said, but like a really complicated identity that he's apparently reflecting uh, in these couple of lines here. Okay, now that's at, a, that's at this stage of his life, right? At this stage of his life, if we fast forward it and don't know that anything dramatic is about to happen, and we said... So uh, how is he going to die? Like, how is he going to re-reconcile with his family at this point in his life? What would he say? <laughs> Why would I be reconciled with my family? Like, this is the craziest thing I've ever heard, right? It's only because a lot of things then intervene that the plan changes, right? So he meets his brothers. He has this idea to get Benjamin in. Then Judah steps up and actually tries to protect Benjamin. And he's like, oh, maybe there's actually an opportunity for, like, full reconciliation here. And especially once he hears some things about his father, and he's like, okay, maybe we can actually do this, and he brings them, brings them down. Right? So if we, one of the problems that we always have in reading biblical stories uh, is the problem, uh, one of my teachers called the problem of being an omniscient reader. Right? We don't know the end of the story, yeah. which makes it very hard to, to unpack the stages of the story, because it's hard to appreciate that Joseph actually has zero interest in reconciling his family, since we all know that in just like four chapters, He's actually being fully reconciled with his family. But you're actually right. If he doesn't remember... Why do you sound surprised by that? There's always a point. It's only at that point when he sees... that's It's like he can't put it out of his mind until then. Right? I mean... Right. And I would emphasize that to remember doesn't have to be remembering, as we've already seen, but something like, okay... Thinking now, like, maybe this is plausible, right? He may have always remembered his dreams, but like, 
not happening, right? I mean, how is this happening? Uh, I'm not going back to Canaan, and they're not here, so it's just put it aside, that's not what's happening. I don't know what God was thinking. Maybe it was all, you know, how do you know if a dream is prophetic or just insane? Um, I have lots of dreams. <laughs> I have no reason to think they're coming true. But then he's, then Zachar in the sense of like, I'm going to bring this back as a real option. Maybe this actually is a template for what's, what ought to happen next. So that's a great point. Okay, one more point, and you actually mentioned this uh, a few minutes ago. Sorry, what's your name? Wendy. Wendy. Wendy mentioned a few minutes ago, going back to the first page now, Something that, again, is, you know, underappreciated, maybe appreciated is the wrong word, but under, underappreciated about Joseph is what he does within the Egyptian political system. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. So this is, of course, there is this famine, right? So we always think about the famine as this you know, vehicle for bringing the brothers down, right? And that's, you know, in a sense, narratively, that's true. But that's not the only effect it has. It also affects Egypt. They don't have food. So what happens to the Egyptians? You know, it's great about the Canaanites, or at least you know, 12 of the Canaanites who make their way to Egypt, uh, but what about the Egyptians who don't have food? So we actually get a, a fairly long description of what happens to them in chapter 47. And you know, they, run out of, they run out of silver, and they all, they all come to Joseph. And remember, he had been collecting grain from the farmers for the last seven years. So when they run out of silver, they're like, Wait a second. Why should we die of hunger? You have all our grain. No, we can't afford it, right? Because, of course, prices are high. We don't have a lot of disposable income. Like, that's not how the ancient economy worked. No one has silver sitting around to just buy food. They're literally subsistence farmers, right? You assume that you're going to grow enough this year to survive this year and then plant enough for next year. So maybe we can buy food for like half a year, a year if we're lucky. But now what? And now we can't buy food. But you have all this food. Like you're sitting on the grain. This doesn't make any sense at all. So Joseph, who you might have expected to say, like, yeah, that was exactly the point. Now I can release this grain, does not say that. Says, oh, but you have other goods, right? We can trade. You can give me, for example, your livestock. And then when you run out of livestock, you can give me your land. And when you run out of your land, uh, you can be slaves. It's interesting how the text says the people... Yeah, but the text puts That's the idea in the people. Well, I mean, clearly Joseph wasn't giving it away. Right. right. So now that he's not giving it away, and this is the same cycle that any any farmer, a destitute farmer would go through. First, you get rid of any movable goods you have. Right? I mean, if, I, if I'm desperate, I'm desperate. So, like, whatever I happen to have on hand, which is for ancient farmers, like, typically not a lot, but whatever I have, barter for food. Don't have that, so the land itself. Right, which of course is a terrible thing to do, uh-huh. because your only chance of getting out of destitution yep. is the land. Without that, and the animals. Right. So assuming I've already gotten rid of the animals, so now, now I get rid of the land. Now I'm essentially, you know, in debt forever because I, I literally have no way of getting out of debt. Uh, and finally, the, the last act of desperation would be trade my own labor for for anything for subsistence. That's exactly the same cycle that we get towards the end of Yikra, the end of Leviticus, uh, and the cycle of the Hebrew, becomes a Hebrew slave. Right? So if, you're, if your neighbor is impoverished, then he might, uh, and he asks you to, to, to take out a loan, if the loan doesn't work, then he's going to sell stuff, redeem the land, if that doesn't work, he's going to sell his land, and, if he can't, and after there's no land, he'll sell himself, and now you might have actually acquired your neighbor as a Hebrew slave, and then there's rules of... Uh, so there, actually, in Leviticus, it's actually until the Jubilee, yeah. Which makes a lot of sense, because what ha- else happens in Jubilee? The land goes back. The land goes back. What's the point of releasing him after six years if he doesn't have land back? Right? What's he going to do? I mean, that's the whole point. He's just going to sell himself again. So in that law, it's got to be the Jubilee. Then he has his land back. Debts are canceled. You have a fresh start. Anyway, the point is that this is a perfectly reasonable, I mean, sad, but reasonable economic cycle here for these destitute farmers. And the people say, the bolded line, V'nye'a anachnu v'amatenu, Avadim right? We in our land will be slaves to Pharaoh. So the land is really interesting. You know, raises interesting questions about crown ownership of lands in ancient Egypt. But the fact that the people became slaves is what I want to emphasize right now. Because, of course, slaves to Pharaoh is a phrase we're going to see a lot in the Bible, but it's not usually about the Egyptians. Right? But here, the first slaves to Pharaoh that we hear about are actually engineered by Yosef, right? And they're the Egyptians. So this is really important for setting up 
the person, the character, who seems to be the foil to Yosef, or for whom Yosef is the foil. Because the next major character in the story is someone who, to some extent, actually has a mirror image biography of Joseph. So Joseph was born in Canaan, comes down to Egypt, and rises to power in the palace. Now we're going to meet someone who's raised in the palace of Egypt, leaves Egypt, and tries to go to Canaan. So who's that? Moshe. Moshe. Right. And of course, in, ter- in light of what we just saw, you know, what's, what, how is Moses the op- Moshe the opposite of Yosef? This is the last point. Yeah, so Yosef is the one who enslaves all these people to Pharaoh. And Moshe is the one who says, like, we've got to end the slavery to Pharaoh, actually take these people out of Egypt. Now, the, uh, Moshe, Moshe's identity is also complicated. I don't want to spend too much time on it, but it's also fascinating. It's complicated as soon as, you know, as soon as, like, as, soon as you say that, of course, it's like, obviously complicated, right? So he's born to an Israelite mother, uh, raised in the palace complex or whatever, you know, wherever he's exactly raised, goes out, and that, again, I don't want to read this too carefully, but you have the, the relevant passages on uh, the rest of page two, goes out, for reasons that are not known to us at least, to see his brethren, right? And at that point, we actually don't know who his brethren are. Because we, again, being omniscient readers, intuitively think that his brethren are obviously the Israelites. But the more obvious interpretation would be his brethren are the common Egyptians. I mean, he's, he has this uh, you know, rarefied existence in the, in the palace, but like, what do what regular Egyptians do? So he goes out to see it, but he sees an Egyptian beating an Israelite, and surprisingly, because we don't know if he knows that he's an Israelite at that point, he takes the side of the Israelite and kills the Egyptian. Now, at some point in the story, he, it becomes clear that he does know he's an Israelite, but we have no idea when, when he discovered that. Could have been that he knew that from childhood. So, I have to assume yeah. that his, his mother, who became his nurse, yeah, at in some point informed him of yeah, this. Totally possible. Of course, if so, you know. Since they didn't wean people till very relatively old, yeah. so that you were sent, sentient as a person by the time you were weaned. Totally possible. I mean, it's true. It would have been till you know, at least three, maybe four or five yeah. even. Uh, you know, so now, I don't know how old he's exactly. Let's assume he's in his 20s. If no one's ever said anything about it since then, you know, think about a kid who heard that from his nurse when he was four, but otherwise he has to be treated like an Egyptian. Like, again, just it, it might be complicated in his mind. Yeah. What he thinks, what he believes, what he knows. I don't know. I don't know. But it, but it's certainly clear at this point that at some point in the story, either for a long time or just now, he discovers or he knows that he's, uh, that he's an Israelite. I want to skip to the part where he runs to Midian. Right? So he's, uh, he's scared. He goes to Midian. And just very quickly, again, the naming of children, right? So you, you know the story. So he goes to Midian, well, the daughters. Now, when, when the daughters come back, when Ruel's daughters come back to their father, and their father, who apparently left them to be, like, I don't know what the right word is, but uh, uh, more than annoyed, less than oppressed by other shepherds on a daily basis, because he's like, oh, why did, you come, why did you come back so quickly today? And they say, oh, an Egyptian man saved us. So that's important, because it means that to an outsider, again, exactly, again, like Joseph, right, he's clearly Egyptian. You know, what does it mean that he's Egyptian? So presumably his dress, his language, you know, how does he speak to them? Does he speak to them at all? They, you know, he's in, in broken Midianite. Uh, does he like manage to stammer something out? I don't know if his skin color was different. The uh, you know Midian and, and Egypt are not that far apart. But to to an outsider who doesn't know him, it's clearly he's an Egyptian, right? So so we may have already been like you know, puzzled by his complicated identity. Like is he Egyptian? Is he Israelite? But to these Midianite girls, he's obviously Egyptian. An Egyptian man helped us. So very very quickly, sort of remarkably quickly. Uh, he marries Tzipora, <laughs> like two verses later. Um, and they have a child. So we get, again, we get parents getting to work out all of their identity issues on their children. <laughs> so she bore a son. Again, in Semitic, right? I was a stranger in a strange land. Now, when was he a stranger in a strange land? His whole life. I mean, he was born there. It depends if he thinks Egypt's a strange yeah, I mean, land, right? As an Israelite, he was uh, that Israelites were feeling their independent so, difference. Great. So the obvious thing is, like, right now he's a stranger, a stranger, right? I mean, that's that's got to be like a big part of this. Yeah. But the open question is: Does he feel like he was always a stranger in a strange land, or 
or not, actually. Like, does he actually share what the girl said, which is that, like, no, no, I'm Egyptian. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's true. I, I'm, I'm ethnically or, you know, biologically, I was born to an Israelite woman, but, like, that doesn't make my identity complicated. It never, it never occurred to me that it, they have only recently discovered that he was a stranger. Uh-huh. That's strange. Right. Right. Uh, and not one of those strangers. Right. That would certainly make it more powerful, right? So if, if uh, well, I mean, obviously it takes time to, to have a child. <laughs> but if it was last year that he discovered that mm-hmm. actually he was not an Egyptian prince as he thought he was, yeah. uh, or at least not by birth, then yeah, that's like really traumatic. And you know? Not even an Egyptian. Right. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. So this is all this is all in the background. Right? So back to the, to the point that I made a long time ago. So when these Jews in the Persian Empire are thinking like, well, what's the precedent for like the life that we're living here? So there's nothing on the national level, right? They, there is no period of Jewish history which serves as a precedent here. But at least in individuals, we can think about Joseph, right? Now, the reason I want to talk about, we spent a few minutes on Moshe as well, is that as we'll see, Moshe is almost the polar opposite and therefore could serve as a model if you wanted to argue against uh, the sort of Joseph mode of diaspora existence. But if you want to take Joseph, then Moshe is really not your model, right? Like he's he's not he's someone I don't want to talk much about. It's hard to not think of him in the uh, pantheon of Jewish heroes, mm. but he's not going to be the person I refer to because he really does the opposite of what I want to <laughs> emphasize. I might want to emphasize existence in the diaspora, and of course Moshe represents in everything that he did the <coughs> profound need to exit the diaspora. So Moshe, we'll, we'll come back to Moshe, but we'll put him aside aside for now. Great. Now, we're going we're gonna to look at a couple of texts very quickly and then turn uh, back to Esther for the last, last few minutes. So on page three, you have, starting on page three, you have a few texts, which were just, I, I mean, they're here for you to look more carefully at, at your leisure. But I just want to look at them briefly to sort of give flesh to the point I made very quickly uh, a little while ago, that Jews in the Babylonian and Persian exiles were waiting for like something really big and important to happen. So when I say that, I'm not just guessing, and of course I don't really know how many people were expecting what, but, but I'm not just guessing. The texts that we have indicate that that was what they were being told, that the prophets were actually saying, like, this is what's going to happen. There's going to be grand, impressive things happening here. So let's skip the passage from Shemot for right now and turn to Yechezkel. And Yechezkel, this is actually not a happy passage, <laughs> but Yechezkel, who, of course, lives in the Babylonian exile, right? he himself was exiled. He was born in Jerusalem, apparently, exiled to the region of Nippur, and not too far from Babylon. And he prophesies in exile. And he says, skipping the beginning, starting from Pasuk Lam and Gil, I don't need to pay attention to the words, because a lot of them will feel, sound very familiar, even if you've never, or if you don't remember Yechezkel Karakah. So as I live, so an oath by God, as I live, I will rule over you. Where are those phrases from? Haggadah, exactly, excellent. Exactly. No, that's exactly right. That's actually perfect, because actually the, the phrases show up often in, in Tanakh, but virtually always either describing the Exodus or in alluding back to the Exodus. Like, this is totally Exodus terminology. Okay. So it's like, in case you missed what I said. No, but I'm serious about that. Right? I will be. So, El midbar ha'amim, I will bring you to the wilderness, the desert of the nations. V'nishpati yitzchem sham panim al panim. And now, again, in case this is like all lost on his audience, like too subtle for them. Ka'asher nishpatati et avotichem b'midbar eret mitzrayim, k'nishafet yitzchem n'um Hashem alokim. So, explicit linkage. I'm going to do right now with you the same that I did in the generation of the Exodus. Right? I said this is not happy. You notice that there was one phrase that he kept adding to Yad Chazakah right? What's that third phrase here? Right. Outpoured fury. Now, the outpoured fury, it turns out, is not directed against, as you might think, the Babylonians. Actually, Yechazakah has nothing bad to say about the Babylonians at all throughout the entire book. The fury is poured out on the Jews. 
And when he says he's going to enter into judgment, he then gets actually like, fairly explicit about what this means, and he says, many of you will get out of Babylon to the wilderness, but will not enter the land of Israel. You will die in the wilderness. Now, of course, that's not unfair in terms of the Exodus also, right? They did die in the wilderness. It didn't sound in like the book of Exodus and Numbers and Bamidbar that that was the plan. Here, Yefesco says, that's the plan. That's, that's the new plan. <laughs> I am not bringing you all into Israel. I am going to take you out. And for Yefesco, that's actually this primarily because God is very concerned about his own reputation. And if he doesn't take them out, all the other nations will say, God can't take them out. So I'm going to take you out. And then you're going to die. But no promises. Exactly. Up there. Uh, well, he says, some of you will make it in, but I will go one by one. And we'll see who makes it in. So again, this is a sort of twisted version of the Exodus, like a <laughs> twisted, nefarious version of the Exodus. But I want to emphasize that it is a vision of another Exodus. Yeah. So we're going to do now, like, how is this exile going to end? The same way the Exodus in the, the exile in Egypt ended. With but in a sort of uh, evil, twisted way. Now other, other prophets say this in different ways and without those you know, evil twists. So if you turn to page 4, you have a couple of passages from the second half of the book of Isaiah, Mishayahu, which uh, you know, modern scholars call second Isaiah, at least this part of it, 40 to 55. Uh, the traditional view is that this is all the same prophet as Isaiah back in the 8th century, but it's explicitly addressed to the people in exile in Babel. That's clear. Uh, I mean, it says so explicitly. He even says, you know, soon I will call Cyrus to redeem you. Cyrus, my Mashiach, my uh, uh, anointed one, to set you free. I assume it was written in the Babylonian exile, but it doesn't really matter for our purposes. It's addressed to the Babylonian exiles. That's the, the important part. Um, I'll just skip to the third paragraph here because it's a remarkable one. So the prophet says, speaking not to the Jews, but to God. Well, you'll see it in a second. Uri, Uri, Lushio's Zeroah Hashem. Speaking to the arm of God. Zeroah, right? The term that we already know, at least potentially an Exodus term. Uri, Kimekedem, Dorotolamim, Wake up, as you did in days of old. Wasn't it you who hacked Rahab into pieces, who pierced the dragon? So I guess if I asked you, like, wasn't it God who did this? What would you say? I have no idea. What is he talking about? Um, um, So it it actually is, it seems pretty clear that he's he's referring to stories, you know, mythological stories that are not familiar from elsewhere in Tanakh. We don't have such stories. Rahab is mentioned a couple of times in Tanakh. We don't have a story of God chopping Rahab into pieces. Do you mean Rahab the harlot? Oh, no, this is Rahab with a hay. Oh. Uh, some sort of mythological. Rahab, thank yeah. you. Yeah. English, English, English. English myth of these things. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And of course, piercing the dragon. You know, there's, there's uh, more to say about this. But. Yeah, I mean, we know it. We actually know some of these stories from uh, Canaanite, quote unquote, text, the Ugaritic text, which is uh, up in Syria. So it doesn't have to be Babylonian. I could have. That's what Schwartz said. Sorry. You moved last year. Who is it? Schwartz? Yeah. Got it. He gave a talk. Ezra Schwartz is a. Sorry. Right. Sorry. Right. 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 Wonderful. Yeah. Okay. So for our purpose, it doesn't matter so much. Let's just, you know, this is some reference to a myth that we actually don't have in Tanakh. We could probably piece together from other, other texts. But then it gets actually a little bit more interesting for our purposes because he continues. Haloati hamacharevet yam. Wasn't it you who dried up the sea? Now that might be mythological also. But made to home Rabbah, the waters of the great deep, Hasama Ma'amake Yam Derech Lavor Gilim, who made the depths of the sea into a path for the Gilim, those who had just been redeemed, to pass through. And the Red Sea. Yeah, that's obviously Yamsuf, right? That's no, no longer mythological. Actually, what's really fascinating about this, and this is something to think about when it comes to Passover. Uh, is that he has now conflated a myth of the God splitting the sea with a historical event of God splitting the sea uh, in the context of the Exodus. Right? He sort of like very smoothly shifted from one to the other, like literally in the same sentence, in a way that makes it seem like he sees these actually as sort of two instantiations of the same basic story. So that's really fascinating to think about. But the important part for us is that last point, right? So I can actually, I can actually bracket out the mythological points for our purposes and just say what the prophet is saying. God, you're the one who split the sea for the redeemed people once before. 
do it again. Right? So let those liberated by God return. Come to Zion with shouting, eternal joy. That's what he expects. But you did it once before. Do it again. Like that's, you're the Zerah. You're the arm of God who once did this before. Now the Zerah, of course, becomes a key word. Right now, in retrospect, like, oh, when he said Zerah, that's the Zerah and the Suyah. Let's look to see for the Israelites in the Exodus. And he, he wants that to happen happen once more. I got a quickie on, on this one. <clears throat> Dried up the sea and the waters of the great deep. Is that a passing reference to Maynoah, also the flood, maybe? Interesting. That's, mm-hmm. a, that's a really interesting point. So I don't know if it's a direct reference, but I think it's certainly true that in a sense the flood of Noah is an undoing of the creation story. In the creation story, one of the big things is that God splits the water and thereby allows civilization to exist. In Noah, the water comes from top and bottom and obliterates civilization, undoes creation, and then does it again. So I wouldn't draw a direct line from this to the flood of Noah, but I think you're right that they're both harking back to creation stories and God splitting the waters. So that's a great point. Okay, and then you have this passage from Zachary, which is also really great, but I'll, I'll leave it aside. I'll leave it aside for now. So the key point again is that uh, Jews in the Babylonian exile are expecting something like an exodus. When they're looking forward to like, how's this going to end? So they're being told explicitly, like, not by random people on the streets, but by, you know, the prophet who gave us the second half of Isaiah, by Yechezkel, by Zechariah. Like, this is how it's going to end. There's going to be these amazing miracles. God's going to come down and uh, do something much like the Exodus. Some passages actually say it will be greater than the Exodus. That's actually the passage that I skipped in Yeshayah uh, Mem Gimel in 43. It's not, forget what happened in the Exodus. It's going to be much better than what happened in the Exodus. No one will even talk about what happened in the Exodus anymore. It's going to be way cooler. So all of that is in the background. And of course, that really is, is the problem that we're trying to set up now, right? Because of course, the Jews are sitting there and like, it's not happening. And there's no indication that it's happening. And there's a temple now, but it's impoverished. And there's like only a few Jews there. And the Persians don't appear to be disintegrating. And no messianic figure seems to be on the horizon. And this is a growing theological issue. So now I think we have uh, a number of the key building blocks. And we can turn back to Esther. I shouldn't say that. Back the way we went back to Jerusalem. Uh, in a sense, we've never been to Esther. But we can turn to Esther and start to think about how Esther deals with all of these building blocks and actually puts them together to, to sketch a story that addresses a lot of these themes and, and points. Sorry, just one question on that. Is, that. is the issue that are you not going to Israel because they're not forced to go or they're not going because they don't think it's real in some sense because it hasn't been prophesied? Or like, oh, is the theological tension more that they were promised something and that didn't happen and if there's just like weird kind of happening? Or is it more that they would only go if they're supposed to go? I think. So those both seem true, but I think it's the it's the one about you know the, the disappointed expectations that's the theological issue for them. Right? Because that's when they're like, wait, we don't understand what's happening to the whole idea of biblical history. Right? Because obviously again this is somewhat anachronistic, but given Tanakh as we have it the narrative parts at least, it's not unreasonable to say that the whole story that the Bible tells, the Tanakh tells, uh, is the promise to the vote of a promised land, a long story of how the Jews got to the promised land, set up society there, lost the promised land, and then came back to the promised land. Like, that's the big story. And life in the diaspora, like, as just sort of, like, eternally uh, ongoing, just doesn't fit into that story at all. So that's, that's where the problem comes in. I'm sure it's also true, like if we had, you know, sociological data, polling the Jews in that diaspora, like, why are you not coming back? What's on your mind? So it's, it seems probably true that they would only go back if they were forced to go back or if they were inspired in some really dramatic way to go back. But that's, that's not a problem. But does that not, that's not experience of like an existential problem that like we have the option to go back and we're not going back, what's wrong with our community? Like that in and of itself is not the central. All, all I can say is that they don't seem to. We don't see that in the text. Again, like you know, if we had survey data, it may well be that some percentage of the people were actually you know racked by anxiety about this. Uh, we we will see that not today, but we will see that there are Jews who actually are like, no, that's what we should be doing, uh, and that's especially true for the the movement that's associated with Ezra and Nehemiah. So they actually do go back, not at the beginning, but eventually. They, they're like, okay, that's what we have to do. I mean, if we want to do anything good for the Jews, we have to go back to Jerusalem. Back again, in quotation marks, because now it's even later. But I don't know how representative they are. And before their time, at least we don't hear about that. But they will be 
reflective of that sort of thinking. Like when we can, <laughs> we ought to take that uh, that opportunity. Yeah. I'm seeing something now through the 19 teens, the 19 through the 1940s. Let's put the 30s out of the picture in the first half of the 40s. But who went to the land? You know, crazy fanatics of various sorts, either Zionist fanatics or religious fanatics. Or whatever. You know, that was the early. Then people who had no home, mm-hmm. those who were still left after the Chod uh, So they had no other place to go, so this was there for them. And then later, people came for various other reasons. And an awful lot of us haven't gone there yet. I would venture to guess that most people in this room have not gone there. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. But it's um, the, the sort And of I think you're right. No, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, people so. don't necessarily get up and walk out and say, 100%. I want it, unless they somehow would structure their whole lives around this. 100%. 100%. I think that's actually... Right, right. So we, we will come back to those, those points. You know? I don't want to draw any normative conclusions from it, but I think you're absolutely right, descriptively, yeah. that, like, it's not so surprising, you know, when people are like, ah, you know, Cyrus, let them go back. How could they know not go back? And, like, we're sitting in here in New York asking that question. That's actually, like, a hard thing to criticize them. New York having come uh, from Russia or from right. some such other place, you know, uh, to New York. Right. Okay, so, so in the, just through the last five minutes tonight, uh, I want to just establish two quick facts, and then we'll next week try to unpack those facts in a couple of different ways. So two facts that seem to me to be uh, fundamental to, to understanding Esther are that, one, Esther very profoundly builds on the story of Joseph, and two, that Esther also, much less profoundly, but pretty clearly, also has uh, something of the Exodus in mind, in a more subtle way. So, so again, I just want to establish these quickly, and then we'll, we'll, we'll talk about them more, hopefully, next week. So in terms of Joseph, this is actually, I think, pretty well known. We, I do want to look at some of the evidence for it next week, but you already mentioned that uh, you know, Mordechai and Joseph seem like parallel characters in some ways. There are all sorts of ways in which that's true, interesting ways in which it's not true, but certainly, you know, they both, they both get the ring from the king, right? The rings. What did you say? The dreams. The dreams. What's Mordechai's dream? Well, I think really Ahasuerus saw him. It had a dream of him. And I think maybe there's a parallel there. But I don't maybe not. So it's really interesting because obviously in the Hebrew text of Esther, as, as you know, no, no one has any dreams. It's actually nothing supernatural in the text at all. I guess dreams are not. Not half yeah. supernatural, but... Didn't he remember? Um, well, I guess he's not... It wasn't a dream. dream. It wasn't a dream. It wasn't a dream. Right. But we will see. Yes, yes, and, yes, and yes. Not, this is not going to be next week either, but, you know, in, uh, in, a, in a few weeks, we will see that many readers of Esther right. actually did give Mordechai uh, the role of being a dream interpreter, um, and that's even more building the, the Joseph model. So we'll come... Yeah, we'll come back to that. It's you know, quite floating in your head for various things. So there's all sorts of, all sorts of ways uh, throughout there that Yosef actually has another name. Right? Anyone remember Yosef's other name? Sofnah Paneach, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's given this name Sofnah Paneach by the Pharaoh. Clearly an Egyptian name, although we haven't quite figured out what, what it means exactly. Paneach seems like pa, pa means the in Egyptian. Anch, anch, like people still wear those anch signs, means life. Um, it would be spelled exactly that way, pe, ayin, and chet. So that's right, something like the life, but Sofnah is not, like no one's conclusively figured out what that should be in Egyptian. But the key point is that he has two names. But which name do we actually hear Yosef being called by for the rest of Rashid? Yosef, right? We actually don't hear him being called Sofnapanayach, even when he's like speaking to Pharaoh. Uh, we expect him to be called Sofnapanayach. Mordechai, as far as we know, has only one name, and it's not a Jewish name. right? So, so the names are actually interesting. Esther, of course, does have two names. Yeah, again, etymologically. Esther has another name. What's her other name? Hadassah. And what language is Hadassah? That's Hebrew, right? Hadass, yeah. Myrtle. Esther? Ishtar. Uh, either Ishtar, the goddess Ishtar, or in Persian, Stara means like English, star. So, you know, it could be in Persian. I don't know. It doesn't, doesn't really matter for our purposes what the right answer is. The point is it's not a Jewish name. So she actually has two names. Which one is she called through the book? Esther. Yeah, never Hadassah again, right? It's actually... The most interesting point about that is that there's actually no reason for us to know that she has the name Hadassah, except maybe to emphasize that she's not called Hadassah. 
So that we have to come back to next week as well. Mordechai, we don't even know if he has another name. Okay, so the Joseph, the Joseph background, I think, is, is probably, probably well known. And again, we'll, we'll spend more time on it. Now, the, the Passover, the Exodus connection. This is a bit more subtle, and there's no, no text here, but uh, this will be the last point for this evening. When does the Purim story actually take place in the Book of Esther? So, of course, not on Purim, right? Because what, what happens on Purim itself? Is that lots, lots. So, meaning when we celebrate you know, the 14th of Adar, right? Why do we celebrate Purim on the 14th of Adar? So that's the day after they fall. Right, it's the day after they fall. So nothing happened on the 14th of Adar except for a celebration. The 13th of Adar was the fight. But that's not what most of the book's talking about, right? I mean, that's like handled in like Ten, ten Sukim and Paratet. Now, most of the book, of course, is the whole yeah. machination, right? When did that take place? The same time as space time. Yeah. So we're told that the decree that Haman decrees goes out on the 13th day of Nisan. Okay? Now, let's just quickly... Almost a year. Yeah. Let's just quickly think... Right, so so he casts lots, and he gets actually the latest possible month, right? Which I guess is, I don't know, good or bad. But I guess, you know, if he's going through the months of the year, that's the last one. But just very quickly, so 13th day of Nisan, and then... We're told, as you remember, that the word went out. Mordechai heard what happened. Right? What does Mordechai do when he hears what happened? Tears his clothes, goes to... We're going to look at this in a little bit more detail next time, but goes to the palace, which you can't enter anymore. <laughs> Talks to Esther through an intermediary, because you can't go in anymore. And what do they decide at the end of that discussion? What's the course of action going to be? The past three, three days. Right? So I don't know when those three days start. We assume it starts that day. It doesn't really matter. But as soon as that start day, that starts that day, then they fast the 13th day of Nisan, 14th day of Nisan, 15th day of Nisan. If it starts the next day, obviously 14th day, 16th. It really doesn't matter for us. The key point is that they fast right through the Seder. Right? There's no, there's no Seder that year. And actually, the Midrash picks up on this. And of course, it's Esther who has the idea to go fast three days, right? And in one version of the Midrash, Mordechai says to Esther, Get! Pesach! Seder! And she says to him, I'm not actually paraphrasing. This is just what she says. You're an idiot. Uh, <laughs> uh, if we don't fast, there will never be another Pesach again. So fast this year, and uh, that way we'll have Pesach to celebrate for the rest of our lives. The key point for us is just to recognize that Purim actually takes place on Pesach. Okay? So that seems like worth noticing, especially in light of some of the things we've already said. Again, we'll, we'll try to unpack this a bit more, but Purim is almost the antithesis of everything that people have been saying about the Exodus. Because, let's just say this very briefly for now, what is the redemption of Purim? Like, how would you summarize it? They don't kill us, we kill them instead. <laughs> yeah. Right? Defend off and defeat. Defend off and defeat. And essentially what we're celebrating is, we didn't get massacred. It's really the only Jewish holiday for which that joke actually works. There's no leaving. There's no exodus. Right? Next year, you know, if we check five years before Purim, five years after Purim, so what is Jewish life like? Exactly the same. And that's they apparently what we're celebrating. No, they didn't move. Yeah. They didn't move at all. Right? So apparently the celebration of Purim is literally that we still have our lives here. Right? That's it. That's really all that we're celebrating. It doesn't even <laughs> indicate that this is like going to pave the way for something in the future. Right? There's actually no reason to think that this can't reoccur in 25 years. You know, after Mordechai is no longer the Mishnah Lamech. We get even more entrenched because we get their land. We get there then. I mean, oh, interesting. Okay, yeah. So there's, you know, and I'll just I'll close with the uh, with one quote from the Gemara. Uh, yeah, uh, we'll come, we'll come back to this. The Talmud, the Gemara asks why we don't say Hallel on Purim, and there's a number of explanations offered. But one of the explanations, Rava, Rava is an Amora, fourth century Amora. Where does Rava live? Nachalosa. Yeah, you don't have to be that specific. <laughs> Babylonia. What does Rama say? Why do we not say Halal on Purim? What? Sorry. That's not his explanation. His explanation, his, his line is, Akati We're still enslaved to Achashverosh. Now, of course, we're not still enslaved to Achashverosh, but in other words, like, 
what are we celebrating exactly? Like, it's not that he didn't celebrate Purim, but like, why would he say Hallel? We're still here. We haven't moved, right? Which is actually a profound statement about Esther. And since the Megillah does say that we have to celebrate, right? It is not to say, as I hope is clear, that like, oh, actually, Purim seems to be trivial and we should stop. Because the book seems to take it very seriously. So what this really is, is an observation that leads to, to a question that almost like has to answer itself, which is like, why does the book think this is worth celebrating? This is obviously a very different kind of celebration, and actually a very different kind of gula than some of the prophets had been saying, right? If they had been saying like, oh, God's going to come in with his rot, uh, and take you out, Esther's like, actually, let's get to Nisan, we're going to fast, and we're going to celebrate the fact that we're not dead, even though we're still here. Right? So that seems like an amazing subversion of all of these expectations that we've been talking about. So, okay. Have, it's also, we haven't lost whatever it is we built up here. Yeah, that's true. Not, and look, death, okay, we're not being left death I, I will not, um, to go somewhere. Yes, I will not add more to this, because I think we've done a good job of laying some of the foundation here. Next week, hopefully, we will build on this and, and start to unpack Esther in a slightly more detailed way. Uh, to try to see how the book actually tackles these in, in a little bit more detail, and also brings in the, you know, then we'll talk next week also about the characters of Mordechai and Esther in a lot of detail, so going back to some of the questions of, like, who's lining up with who? Gender, I think, plays a profound role in the differences between Mordechai and Esther, and an interesting way also for thinking about, like, what it means to be a Jew in the diaspora, and I'll, I will not say more for now. Okay. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Thank you again.